Welcome to the J. Kim Show, Hong Kong's first dedicated podcast on investing in Asia. It's no secret that Asia is home to some of the most dynamic, innovative, and game-changing companies in the world. Join us as we survey the land to find the most profitable investment opportunities that will allow you to capitalize off this next wave of wealth creation. If this is your first time listening, thank you for stopping by. This podcast is produced with the goal of providing actionable insights with every single episode. And now, on to the show. Today's show guest is Chris Balding. Chris is an associate professor at the Fulbright University of Vietnam. Before that, he spent nine years teaching at the HSBC Business School of Peking University Graduate School in Shenzhen, China. Considered to be one of the leading experts on the Chinese economy and financial markets, he is a Bloomberg View contributor and advises governments, central banks, and investors around the world on China. His book, Sovereign Wealth Funds, The New Intersection of Money and Power, published by Oxford University Press, is considered to be one of the go-to references regarding sovereign wealth funds around the world. Please enjoy my conversation with Chris. Hi, Chris. How are you doing? We're very happy to have you on. Thank you very much for having me, Jay. So for our audience from all the way around the world, all over the world for that matter, uh, could you please uh, introduce yourself? Who's Chris Balding and what do you do for a living? Sure. I'm a professor at uh, the HSBC Business School of Peking University in Shenzhen. Um, I have lived in Shenzhen for about uh, eight years. Um, I, to this day, speak almost no Chinese. Um, <laughs> but uh, luckily, I have three kids that, uh, you know, speak fluent Chinese. And so they're kind of, uh, they, they kind of help steer me right. Um, and basically, I spend a lot of my time focusing on uh, the data within the Chinese economy. And what I mean by that is um, China is such a unique place that uh, a lot of times, you know, it's, I feel it's, it's more like a crime show where you're trying to uh, decode and play detective on the data to figure out what's going on in China rather th- than just interpreting the data in China. Well, the good news is that uh, you, you actually uh, made me feel better because I don't speak any Chinese either. Uh, I'm actually Korean American, and uh, so I've been living in Hong Kong for 12 years, and uh, so that's pretty uh, useless of me. But the uh, hopeful thing is that even though you don't speak Chinese, you're based in Shenzhen, and you are still able to decipher exactly what's going on up there. Um, So maybe you could just talk to us uh, about why you moved to China to begin with. You know, honestly, it was, uh, I'd love to say that there was some brilliance on my part or some part of some master plan, uh, a part of this, um, but there really wasn't. Uh, really, what prompted us to move to China the first time, um, my wife was an architect and she got headhunted to go to China for a while. And then when I was graduating with a PhD, um, my background is international finance and economics, and I didn't want to move to middle America. Um, to, to, to do my research on international finance and economics. Um, and I was no China specialist when I moved to China, um, but I had a sense of adventure and I was willing to go. And uh, eight years later, uh, I'm, I'm still there. They haven't kicked me out yet. Um, my kids are learning Chinese and it's, uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's a stimulating place to be. And, you know, you wake up every day and see things you've never seen before and learn something new every day. I, I think Shenzhen, you're in Shenzhen, and uh, I think that's, it's literally, you're in the front row seat of uh, some of the greatest innovation that is happening in the entire world right now. We, I just spoke to a couple hardware guys uh, that are based up there, and it just sounds so incredible. Every time I go up there, you know, I, 
I don't go up there often enough, but I should. But every time I go up there, it seems like uh, things are moving faster and, and the scene is just exploding. So I imagine over the last eight years, you've just seen it explode. Just, just in the past probably two years, um, right around where I live, they're putting in, I'll be honest and saying I'd have to go out and count, it would probably be 20, uh, 20 to 30 uh, high rises that are 30 plus stories. Uh, several of them are 50 and 75 stories. Um, so the degree of the degree of change and investment um, that you're seeing, uh, not just in the hardware side, but in the uh, in the tech development scene, um, is just amazing. Uh, a couple of years ago, um, I remember the first time I saw mobile payments on a phone, and I remember what the heck is that? Thinking to myself, I'd, I'd never seen it before. And now, two years later, you know, no nobody uses anything else. That's right. um, and that's, that's just the speed of change that you're seeing in China. I think that's one of the, uh, the biggest shocks for anyone that goes to visit China is that literally no one carries a wallet anymore. Everything is done on uh, WeChat, WePay, Tencent, and, uh, and it's just mind-blowing. And it's, I think it's one of, the, one of the, uh, the first things where China has actually uh, surpassed the West um, with the technology and, and the integration, integration into everyday life. Um, so, all right, so let's begin. I, I'm, I'm actually quite uh, excited about uh, talking to you because I'd love, I, I've been dying to hear your, your views uh, being on the ground. Why don't we start off with initially sort of what are some basic uh, uh, mis misconceptions or uh, asymmetrical information uh, that people have when they think about China and uh, the economy of China uh, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about this from an investor standpoint. We have a lot of investors that have never lived over here, have never been in the region, or maybe they've come on trips. Um, how would you paint the picture uh, to someone that is, has never been here? So one of the things that I would say from a, from a big picture uh, standpoint, and I'll, I'll start off with a couple of big picture points. Um, if you if you think back to your uh, to your base, to your intro level stats class, one of the first things that they teach you in stats class is about the normal distribution. Um, and so many things in China are um, very abnormal distributions. Okay, whether it's um, bimodal extremes where you have you know um, distributions at the extremes and very little in the middle, um, other things like that. Um, and uh, that, that manifests itself in, in, in many different ways. Um, I think another thing that is very important to note is um, Chinese consumers are very, very price sensitive, um, extremely price sensitive, probably more so than any other country I've, I've seen. Um, the other thing is that uh, Chinese consumer preferences are, are remain very, very fluid. The concept of brand loyalty uh, on any product in China is, is almost unheard of, um, uh, you know, and, and so this creates a very unique environment where um, uh, a, a retailer, a company, whatever it is, um, they can do something uh, very novel, innovative, it's, it's a good product, and at the same time, consumers have no problem switching um, in a very rapid, uh, in a very rapid format. That's interesting. And so one of the things um, that all of this creates, I think, from investment themes going uh, going forward is uh, there is generally speaking I would say that there's uh, confidence 
within China about uh, future investment returns. Um, but I would also say that those are relatively fragilely held. Those aren't uh, deeply held convictions. Those are, uh, those are beliefs about the future, about how investments uh, are going to perform. Um, however, people are incredibly willing to change their mind about uh, the state of investment returns. Um, so whether it's a new investment product, whether it's a new company, um, whatever it is, people don't hold those convictions profoundly. They're willing to change between companies and asset classes very, very easily. This, inf this impacts uh, how, how uh, companies behave because they know that you know, they have a one to two year window and if they're not performing in that one to two year window, uh, consumers and investors are gonna move on to something else. Interesting. I, I also heard an argument recently saying, stating that the Chinese consumer behavior uh, has actually shifted uh, towards locally curated uh, products and brands uh, as opposed to import, imported products. Is that what you're seeing as well? Um, I, I think the picture there is, uh, is complicated. Um, there are definitely cases where that would be true. Um, there's also cases where I think that that would be uh, that would be that would be untrue. Um, let me give you a, a, a couple of examples. Um, I think if uh, if let's assume that price was no object, um, I think there would be a near universal preference among Chinese consumers for instance on something like infant formula. Okay, there's a perception of higher quality, higher safety, things like that. Okay. Um, at the same time, let's 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 you know in our little scenario, let's let's in, include price as a factor. Um, Chinese companies have realized that, um, and this is how this is how I think corporate culture is changing in China. Um, Chinese companies have realized that that uh, that there are factors beyond price that matters, and part of this is a natural evolution because they, you know, five ten years ago, they used to be able to go out in the marketplace and say, we will beat any competitor by 10% on price and that's all that matters. Um, and consumers accepted that for a long time. Um, China is no longer a low cost place to do business. And so Chinese companies are saying, we have to compete on other factors, whether it's quality, whether it's branding, you know, whatever it is. Um, and so consequently, there's a lot of Chinese companies that are saying, hey, we may not be able to compete on price, um, or, or quality, but we're going to give you a B plus product at 20, 20% less price than a New Zealand uh, infant formula um, that is going to charge, you know, let's say 25, uh, 25, 40% more. Mm -hmm. So there, there's, 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 it's, it's, it's more complicated, I think, than just saying there's been a shift away from foreign goods. Um, and in many cases, especially luxury products, automobiles, things like that, I think there's still uh, somewhat of a preference, but those, those low and mid-tier companies in China that, that compete in some of those spaces are definitely upping the quality of their game and are providing, in a lot of ways, you know, solid products for um, significantly less than what imported brands do. So there's more competition in those spaces for sure. Interesting. I think uh, for, for, for an outsider, someone that's not on the ground there uh, and, and sort of doing research and, and seeing things day to day, uh, one, of the, one of the large sort of uh, misconceptions uh, perhaps is that, uh, well, either, either everything is, is uh, fine in China and everything, all the data is accurate and, and, uh, and China doesn't have any uh, sort of problems or issues, 
but then there's also this other side of, of uh, people looking in, uh, hearing these stories about ghost towns, cities, like all these buildings that are empty, and uh, you know, China's a currency manipulator, and all the macro data coming out of China is false, uh, you know, and it's just made up by the government, and everything's censored by the government as well, all the news. Um, so where on that entire uh, spectrum is, is reality? <laughs> I think on, on this specific issue, um, one of the things that I, I would always say is people come into China, I've met people, and they'll say, oh, well, you know, everything is overstated. Um, and I would say, no, not everything is overstated. And they say, oh, well, are you saying it's understated? No, I'm not saying it's understated. It's, 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 there are cases where uh, Chinese firms or, or provinces have overstated data, and there's cases where they've understated data. Um, I'll give you a story from a couple of years ago. Uh, the Chinese, uh, one of the national Chinese audit offices um, was auditing SOEs um, mm -hmm. on how, on their financial data. And they released a report that said that a lot of Chinese SOEs were fudging their financial data. Revenue or profits, and some of them were overstating uh, revenue or profits, okay? And basically what, the surface, what happens is, is that you see this story of these wanted to keep profits to themselves. And so they basically understated their profits so they could plead poverty to the government so they wouldn't have to turn over some of that money. Other SOEs didn't do that great, and so they tried to artificially boost their revenue and profits <laughs> to show how good they are. okay? And so one of the things that I would always caution people, um, look, in, in, a, in a lot of places, you know, as the United States, for example, okay, there are people that will complain about inflation data in the United States, GDP data. When we're talking, when we're talking about arguments in the United States over corporate data, um, or national GDP data, things like that. Um, when, we're, when we're arguing over inflation data, we're arguing over pretty technical stuff that are, are going to move inflation data numbers by a tenth of a percentage point, two tenths of a point, generally speaking. Um, and, and if someone tweets it out, if the government tweets it out, I can generally take it as accurate. In China, I would always, always urge people to do their own research um, and to go back and double check numbers. Go to the source data of where, uh, of where that's, uh, of where people are saying they got data, okay? Um, it might be right, it might be overstated, it might be understated, but I would say you cannot just take it as, uh, as a given. Um, and, and, and so all this is to say, unfortunately, it's complicated. And to give you one more example, um, there's a lot of skepticism, as I think there rightfully should be, about national GDP data, which is which is one number that draws a lot of scrutiny. Um, in within about the year, have been declared um, by the national government. Um, I think there's evidence that uh, even national GDP data is not entirely accurate. But one of the things that I think has also happened is that the national government has smoothed uh, data so that when real GDP is, is below expectation, they kind of boost it upwards, and that when it's um, above expectation, they kind of nudge it downwards so that, it's a, so that it's a very, very stable line. And so as an investor, one of the things I would always tell investors, um, it's, it's a good place to start if you're going to use a research service or something like that, but it is absolutely incumbent to say, okay, this is, this is the investment that I'm looking at. This is, you know, uh, the trade I'm looking at. 
um, whatever it is, and go out and you have to do the legwork for yourself. You have to match the data um, because it's simply um, too unreliable to just assume that data is overstated or understated. That's good advice. Uh, it's it's really it's very tricky, uh, like you say, and uh, it's it's kind of agonizing, I think, for a lot of investors that are sitting outside of China because they see this growth happening and they see this explosion of innovation and they see, I mean, it's the writing is on the wall that China is going to be the largest economy in the world, but they've either gotten burned so many times trying to trade the market. Uh, or, or make direct investment into China without having the right partner or just, just having a bad luck uh, that they are scared, right? And they're scared uh, to go in. Um, but at some point, I think, uh, just from you know, a big picture standpoint, I think uh, it, 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 it makes sense that you have to get involved somehow, right? I mean, if, if China is going to be the largest economy in the world, the markets, the Chinese indices are going to be uh, are going to have to be added to all the major in indexes of the world as well. And so at some point, uh, you know, there's going to be a lot of uh, a fun flow going in, right? So um, from that perspective, it just, it seems like long term, that's the direction, but you have to be able to withstand the sort of up and down from here to there, right? So that's always challenging. Um, especially when if you are someone that's trading like we were just talking about off GDP data and you're used to this sort of seven, eight, nine percent growth that we've seen in the past, but all of a sudden that is uh, being compromised as well. Um, you know, I mean, these all have to be taken into account now. So the world has to change their expectations. I mean, six high six percent growth, you know, GDP is still, uh, you know, quite amazing in most parts of the world. But I think that the world has the appetite of the world with, with regards to China has just gotten a little bit too big. Um, so uh, let's talk a little bit about um, about the banking sector in China. You you do a lot of good writing on Bloomberg, which I enjoy reading uh, Bloomberg View. And um, I, uh, I find your pieces very insightful. Uh, I think uh, the entire world is probably asking this same question. Is China really facing a banking crisis right now? I would, uh, so that, that's a question that is, is, is very complicated and it has a, a lot of people worried. Um, and you get people that are very strident on either side. And my personal leaning, for lack of a better term, is I definitely lean um, somewhat more pessimistic. But I think a banking crisis um, is foreseeable. Or it on, it is not foreseeable in the in the in the near future. Let's say you know within the next uh, one to two years or something like that. Um, with that said, I think a better way. One of the things that I think has happened in a lot of uh, investors' uh, psychology is that they think of crises as mechanistic type of events. That once we hit a certain uh, debt to GDP ratio or something like that, there's going to be a crisis. Um, and one of the shows that I watch from time to time is, uh, is there's a show on National Geographic um, called uh, like Airplane Disasters or something like that. It basically <laughs> goes over why plane, you know, covers a, a plane crash and what went wrong. And one of the things that is so interesting to me when you, when, when you watch a show like this is airplanes don't crash because one thing goes wrong. It's normally a series of events that, that come together and it's a one in a hundred times a one in a hundred times a one in a hundred and they all converge on a single point and the plane crashes, okay? 
And too many people think of a financial crisis as a mechanistic event where once we hit X percent of debt to GDP, we will have a financial crisis. But I think a lot of history shows that that's simply not how financial crises and other events like, like this work. That what, what you have is you have risks building up and then you have risks converging at a certain point and all of a sudden we have some type of um, major event. It, it's, it's not a mechanistic uh, way of thinking about it. And the way I think, and, and the reason I say all that is this, China has experienced incredibly rapid debt growth. Um, it has an incredibly high debt level, okay? The risks are continuing to increase, okay? I, I think that we need to make that very clear that the risks are continuing to increase. China cannot continue its level of debt growth um, for another five or 10 years. Um, if China continues growing its, its debt levels at, the, at these rates in absolute or in relative terms, in five to 10 years, absolutely, there will be a, there will be a crisis of, 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 of an enormous magnitude. Um, but right now, it's, it's more like, you know, think of it this way. Um, China right now is maybe the, the person that has um, some form of early stage cancer that if it, uh, you know, that if it was caught early could be, you know, uh, operated on, addressed, and, you know, and, and we could solve the problems. It's, it's, it's like heart disease. If they started exercising, things like that, the problems, you know, would, would, would go away. Um, these risks continue to build, okay? Make no mistake about it. Um, and I think most importantly, um, China does not show any uh, – I, and I'll give them a little bit of credit in 2017. I think they've at least paid more attention to these issues, but debt continues to grow quite rapidly. Um, but I think the, the biggest concern is that they've been talking about this for five years and they still aren't really addressing it and the pain that it's going to entail, um, like a dieter that's going to stop eating cookies, um, they're, they're still not willing to do that. Right. So, uh, now, on the, now, has the sort of shadow banking uh, sector been uh, reeled in? Is that under control now? Are they, are they make, are, or are they just um, sort of doing the, the thing that they did before where if they shut down one channel, they find another channel to continue to grow that debt? I think what is most likely happening, I think what is the most likely scenario is uh, exactly what you described, that they're shutting down one channel and it simply pops up some other place. Um, I've seen some reports that China um, through July has already blown through about 80% of its annual loan quota um, because a lot of that means that what is happening is that they're bringing a lot of that debt that was in uh, shadow banking products um, onto the formal bank balance sheet. So they're increasing those, they're increasing those loan quotas. Um, so I think what is, what is, very likely happening is that they're simply shutting down one avenue and it, it, it's popping up one other place. And when, when I said earlier that China is going to have to face the, 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 the pain of this, what I mean by that is um, all of this debt that they've put out there, a lot of it has gone into financial assets, okay? Not as much productive activity. Mm -hmm. um, this is why apartment values in Shenzhen um, are above $1,000 a square foot, okay? Um, you know, the, the, the average annual wage in Shenzhen is $10,000 a year, okay? And apartment values are $1,000 a square foot, okay? So you can, you can figure out from there um, what that means. 
they're going to have to accept lower real economic activity and lower asset prices and until they they're and until they're willing to make that trade-off um, they're going to have to continue to pump very high levels of debt so yeah i guess the uh, situation just gets grimmer uh so uh and then on the other side of this uh this china uh conundrum if you will is the uh is the currency uh and uh you know, I think a lot of, of investors have scratched their heads trying to figure out exactly what's going on with uh, the renminbi. Uh, you know, there's there's a lot of mainstream media uh, calling China a currency manipulator. However, at the same time, we see, um, you know, last October, the IMF uh, included the renminbi into the SDR basket. Uh, and so in theory, I would think that that is a long term positive. Uh, for the, the currency itself. Um, what are your views uh, on the currency? Um, you know, there's obviously a lot of capital control still in place. Uh, there's a lot of capital outflows or attempted outflows from the country. Um, so what is, what, is, what is your take on the, the currency there? So I think uh, fundamentally, um, and this is the issue that China, again, um, hasn't, hasn't addressed fully, um, is that fundamentally at this point, because asset prices are so high in China on, on things like real estate, which is the primary wealth uh, factor for households, um, one of the things that you have is you have um, a lot of people that are very interested in um, essentially increasing the amount of foreign assets that they would like to hold, okay? Whether it's people that have purchased a couple of apartments in China and they want to take some of that money off the table and they want to send their, their child to college in Australia or the U.S. or wherever else, whether it's buy a beach home in Thailand, whatever it is, you have much higher appetite uh, for foreign assets by Chinese investors than you do by foreign investors for Chinese assets, okay? Now, if that were to carry forward going forth, that basically means that there's going to be large amounts of capital outflows out of China, okay? Um, and... So the issue of capital controls is essentially just trying to put a Band-Aid over something much, much larger. Um, I, I, don't think it's, I don't think China will return to the level in relative terms um, to the level of uh, foreign investment into China um, that, it, that it saw previously. And I don't think that's an issue that they've grappled with. So if you have... Uh, higher appetite for foreign assets by Chinese investors, that means that money's going to flow out of China. That means that there's going to be a depreciation in the RMB and capital controls can only prop up the RMB for, for some time. Yeah. Now, again, this doesn't mean there's a currency crisis in the offing or anything like that. But if you believe that uh, Chinese investors want to purchase more beach homes in Thailand or send more kids to school in Australia and in the U S then vice versa, that means that the, that the RMB is going to depreciate and capital controls can only prop it up so long. Yeah. And, uh, in the, in, in, while they're doing that in due process, they are, uh, angering a lot of, uh, of, uh, potential real estate buyers across the world. I have friends that, uh, have been trying to buy a home in Vancouver where they're from uh, for the last five years and they just haven't been able to pull the trigger because it's just one straight line up. Um, so it's, it's certainly interesting times, uh, Chris, and it's great that you're on the ground right there, uh, watching it all, you know, so 
the one thing I want to ask you is then from, say, a lo slightly longer term picture of you, let's say five, ten years, um, uh, you know, I mean, it seems like China, despite its growing pains, uh, well, is still going to be okay. You know, I mean, you have, you have some guys, short sellers like um, uh, Jim Chanos, who's been short China for I don't know how long. I don't know if he's still short, but he hasn't made any money on that short China trade. You have the, the one-off guys like Carson Block that fundamentally pick out companies that are fraudulent. But even that, a lot of times that, that blows up in their face because a conglomerate or the SOE or the government comes and bails the company out. And so they don't make any money trying to short China. Um, I can't see a situation where uh, China will completely collapse. Uh, it, it, it might go through some growing pains and a, and a sort of slower ascent. What are your views in, say, five, ten years from now? So I, I, think, that, I think that's a very good uh, assessment of, you know, for instance, like the short selling um, that is going on out there. Um, I do think there are absolutely... Um, for instance, if you're, if you're targeting short selling as an umbrella, um, I do think absolutely that there are uh, significant short sell opportunities. Um, and what I mean by that, one of the things that you see is if you look at, and I'll be honest, I haven't done this for a month or two, so, so it, it's, it might be a little outdated. But uh, a couple months ago, I, I, I created a, a, a data, uh, a spreadsheet of companies, uh, of all A-share companies. And what you saw was, um, uh, a very large number of uh, companies that had very high PEs, okay? And you had a relatively small number of companies that had, let's say, PEs under 20, okay? But what you saw was the companies that had PEs under 20, they were all, you know, the, 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 the SOE oil companies, the SOE banks, et cetera, et cetera. So by market cap, all those companies that had PEs of 5, 10, 15, they were the major companies. They were the anchors of the entire index. But, and this is when, if you remember when I referred earlier to the bimodal distributions, um, and then you had an, an astounding number of companies in China that had PEs up above 100. Um, and so when you're talking about, for instance, like short selling is the universe, one of the things that is that I, I, I would tell people to think about is, um, especially companies that are cross-listed in Hong Kong and things like that, there are companies that, there are a lot of companies that I would, I would put in that it's at least looking at are these good short sell opportunities based upon their valuations, their business models, different things like that. Turning to the Carson Block op uh, options, uh, you know, short sellers of the world. Um, that has become an increasingly risky trade for the exact uh, reason that you've mentioned, okay? Um, people are not as surprised, you know. Um, SOE step in to bail uh, the stock price out and put a floor underneath it, um, things like that. Um, there's absolutely those types of uh, risks. And then there's the other people that are trying to short China, you know, similar to, you know, the, the RMB is going to have a currency crisis or something like that. And within the, within the foreseeable future, one to say two years, um, it's very, very difficult to see that would have to be considered a low probability event. Mm -hmm. um, as I said earlier, if China's debt continues to grow at the rate it's growing, it's not, it's not crazy to think that by 2022, 2025, something like that, if their debt continues to grow at this level, that they will have a currency crisis. Um, because, you know, like, like that uh, person that doesn't exercise and they continue putting on weight and eating too much and not exercising, it's, it, you know, they, they run, they increase the risks of having a heart attack. 
but within a short uh, within a short uh, trading horizon, let's say less than a year, I think it's 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 an, it's a it's a low probability event that anything like the RMB or a Chinese uh, a major Chinese bank is going to explode. Got it. Um, well, thanks for sharing those uh, views. Taking a say five yearish out view, um, what? If anything excites you about China from uh, from maybe a structural growth uh, perspective, or just um, you know exciting themes uh, that you that you that you're witnessing on the ground there that uh, that might be appealing to an outside investor. So I think the things that I would uh, that I would tell people to focus on. Um, is a lot of the, for lack of a better term, small, uh, medium-sized type of companies um, that have little to do with, uh, with the state. Um, and, and, and let me give you an example of, of what I mean by that. Um, Alibaba and JD, and these are two well-known, uh, two well-known companies. I'm just going to use them as an example of, of the type of thing to, to look at, not as necessarily as investment opportunities. One of the things people talk about when they went forget when we talk about Alibaba is one of the reasons Alibaba has become so ubiquitous as a consumer um, channel in China is because so much of the country in China is 30-story high-rises. And so a delivery guy can, you know, take uh, his little ATV and he can drive up, you know, loaded up with packages. And, and these days he can, he can either start with a, with a roll-on and he just, you know, starts at the 30th floor and makes his way down and delivers a whole bunch of packages in, in 10 minutes in one building. Or he goes into the lobby of the building and now they have these like locker structures so that he mm -hmm. can just take out and he can put, it, put in uh, goods into a bunch of different lockers. Um, and so one of the things that has happened because of this is Alibaba is uh, the, the, the overall consumption story in China is not weak, but it's not strong either. But the reason Alibaba is growing is, is because it provides a lot more choice to consumers at, uh, at much better prices. Okay. And so consequently, that's giving, um, that's giving smaller companies channels to put their products out to consumers much faster, much quicker. Um, and have brands be discovered that would not have been discovered through offline uh, retail mm -hmm. channels, okay? Um, so one of the things is, is when you talk about this, there's a lot of small, medium-sized brands that are being able to make their name um, much quicker than, than they would uh, otherwise. Um, the other thing that I would say, as, and, and again, as an example, and, and this is how when I say consumer preferences are changing, JD.com is taking a very different approach to online retailing than Alibaba, and they're taking uh, the approach where Alibaba went asset light. Um, JD is trying to very focus on service, mm -hmm. name brands, right. other things like that. And so one of the things that, uh, as an example, more than a, a specific investment opportunity, Chinese consumers, as their incomes continue to increase, they are much more interested in what is the quality like, what is the service like, all of these additional types of things. And you're seeing um, companies really start to target um, those ideas as selling points. Um, just to give you one specific example, um, um, one of the first times I, I went to a Burger King in China, um, in, in Burger, in, in, when you go to the, a Burger King in the U.S. and in many other parts of the world, um, they're, 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 they're 
a slogan is you can have it your way. Okay. So if you want, you know, extra tomatoes or something like that, you can get extra tomatoes. And in China, I asked for it and they looked at me like I was crazy. Okay. Because <laughs> nobody asks for their preference. Okay. This was a couple of years ago. That is changing so that people will go to brands and say, this is what I want. Okay. This is how I want it done. And so there's a lot of, there's a lot of brands um, that are, that are targeting that uh, increased affluence that are saying, okay, how is it that I want it done? What are the service add-ons that I want um, that are really making a much bigger difference as Chinese consumers demand much higher quality? That's very interesting. And it's, it's one of those, I guess it's a, it's a benefit and a, 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 a perk of being on the ground there and having uh, spent the last eight years there, you get to see all these things uh, changing uh, as, uh, in real time. Um, Chris, thanks so much for sharing your insights on China. I found them fascinating, and I think the uh, the audience is going to uh, be really interested and uh, and and uh, learn a lot from uh, from what you had to say. Uh, I just want to switch gears really quickly uh, before we uh, look to wrap up. Um, I know you uh, you wrote a book uh, not too long ago called Sovereign Wealth Funds, and we obviously don't have enough time. Uh, today to, to discuss the full uh, extent of it, but maybe you could give us a few of the talking points uh, of what you discussed in your book. Sure, sure. The, the, the basic idea was sovereign wealth funds um, now are uh, a, a very large investment class. You have the China Investment Corporation, you have the Norwegian Pension Fund, um, and uh, it, it basically was covering um, what are these funds investing in, how are they investing, um, what are the rules that they have around how money comes into the fund, how money goes out of the fund. Um, focusing on Asia specifically, I, what are unique about Asian sovereign wealth funds is virtually every sovereign wealth fund outside of China and Singapore are natural resource funds. And what I mean by that is Norway and Saudi Arabia is, is probably the two best example, Abu Dhabi. Um, they basically are just funds that um, – they met, so when, when Abu Dhabi pulls oil out of the ground, there's essentially no net wealth change. And what I mean by that is there's oil in the ground valued at, say, $50 a barrel. And if they pull it out, they actually incur a transaction cost to pull that oil out of the ground. But now they have a financial asset instead of a commodity asset. Mm -hmm. So there's been no net change. In China and Singapore, they actually accrued their sovereign wealth funds by, um, by running surpluses of, of, of different kinds. Um, and so that has been a very different uh, change. But what is notable about uh, the China Sovereign Wealth Fund, for instance, is that they actually are, are, are a pretty conservative investor. Um, and the other thing that is, that is very not um, notable about the China uh, invest excuse me, Investment Corporation is that they actually structured it um, much more like a leveraged hedge fund, for lack of a better term, where they were actually buying money from, they were actually borrowing money from the PBOC um, to, to give them the capital. And they've actually, you know, covered their cost of capital plus a few basis points, uh, maybe 25 basis points um, over, the, over their uh, lifespan. So they're actually doing, you know, reasonably well investing in, in pretty safe, uh, primarily U.S. dollar-denominated assets. Got it. Um, yeah, I, I think it's uh, it's fascinating uh, hearing about these funds, and you know, China has has, uh, which I'm sure you're fully aware of, is the uh, the they call it the national team fund that comes in every once in a while and uh, 
it seems like before a big uh, public holiday or something, they'll just come in and buy a bunch of the bank shares or, or just cause a nice rally in the market, which is, I find it's, it's very funny. It's, it's fascinating to watch and, and uh, to see people try to trade around it is even more comical. Um, but uh, I guess it's just a, a, another nuance of, uh, of the Chinese markets. Now, there's an actual trading strategy where Chinese investors will essentially, they say, trade the government. And basically, if there's suspicions that the government is buying something, that, that people will just buy the same thing and write it out for a couple of days or a while because they, they, they believe that the government is essentially setting a price floor on that particular stock. Yeah. And with such a large percentage of the market being retail it <laughs> it tends to uh tends to work i guess yes uh, absolutely yeah well chris uh it's been such a pleasure thanks so much for uh, again coming on and 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 uh and sparing the time to share your insights about china um what is uh is there anything in particular you're working on uh that you're excited about you want to share are you working on another book maybe about china <laughs> Well, I got to, I kind of got three things in in the docket. Uh, the in in no particular order. One of them is is I'm uh, is I've started working on a book about uh, the Chinese uh, tech sector and how society is going to be changing over the next uh, let's say five to ten years. Oh, excellent! Uh, so that's the first one. Um, the second one is that um, I'm working on a little bit of a, a social media startup that hopefully should launch um, by probably hopefully the first of the year. Wow. Um, is the is the second one? Very nice. Um, and then the third one is is that um, I'm it's it, it's it's not final yet, but there's a, there's a very good chance that I'm going to be uh, essentially uh, launching a, a joint venture uh, a joint venture fund uh, where I'm where I'm partnering with somebody else uh, targeting uh, targeting the Chinese market. Oh, that's that's fantastic. That's uh, that's great to hear. Uh, we will definitely be uh, following you <laughs> thereafter, and and, uh, and and uh and we'll definitely be in touch uh, afterwards. What's the best place that uh, our audience can uh, find you, follow you, connect with you? I know you uh, are you tweet uh, from time to time as well. Yes, I, I, I tweet uh, I tweet at uh, Baldings World, uh, or it's uh, you know the Twitter at, at Baldings World, um, and then they can email me anytime at uh, the university. Um, uh, my email address is, is, is on the university website. Just uh, uh, Google me and you can look me up that way. Great. Yeah, we'll have all the, the links uh, linked up in the show notes. So uh, great. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for your time. And, uh, and uh, we appreciate the insights and uh, best of luck on the uh, ventures. Thank you so much, Jay. Appreciate it. All right. Take care. Take care. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. All of the show notes and links can be found over at jkimshow.com. Come back often and don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss the next exciting episode of The Jay Kim Show. As always, I'd love to hear your questions, comments, or future guest suggestions. You can find me on Twitter at jkimmer. That's J-A-Y-K-I-M-M-E-R. See you in the next episode.